Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. It won't have escaped your notice that we are in the midst of an energy crisis. My energy bill at home has just doubled. Has yours, Chuck? Claudine, I got a very polite email from my energy provider asking me to fix next year's bill at double the current cost. Did you agree? I told them equally politely, no. So I think what we're going to do today on the podcast is look at the equivalent actions that companies can take as they grapple with the consequences of extraordinary turbulence in the energy market. It is a moment of historic significance in the energy market with respect to energy security globally. There are a lot of factors driving the turbulence that we are all experiencing in the energy market. We won't have a chance to go through them all on the podcast, but what we're going to do is explore in particular the way that energy is being weaponized. Claudine, we've got a big podcast on a big topic. Stick with us at the end of all of this. We're going to feel a little bit more comfortable about our own level of security in a world of weaponized energy. I think we are in this global perfect storm. We are still emerging from COVID. We also, of course, in the situation where we are staring in the face of global recession. We're also now in a period of quite substantial underinvestment in, in the fossil fuels production, because, of course, we had a number of years of priority being given to energy transition. And we, of course, are in the midst of a major war in Europe, and energy is very much at the center of it. Russia, first of all, wants to use energy as a tool to achieve its own goals, but also the international community, G7, United States, European Union, are looking at energy as a way to exert leverage over Russia. That was Oksana Antonika, a director in our political risk practice based here in London. You know, rightfully, it's unprecedented when we are looking at energy consumers, whether it's, you know, the G7, the EU, taking pretty unique action to try and exercise leverage as consumers of oil. One of the things that's interesting here and unprecedented and that poses, you know, real challenges for the big oil producers is whether that experiment with the weaponization of demand is going to be successful. That's Pat Osgood, Associate Director based in our office in Dubai. What is it specifically that confers, that bestows leverage in energy security on, on a country or on a market? So when we talk about energy security, oftentimes we're just focusing on the security for consumers. And, and quite rightly so, I suppose, for many years and particularly today, it is the issue of whether consumers, you know, the importing countries could have uh, sustainable, stable and, you know, also uh, affordable flow of energy. But I think for many countries, energy security is not only about the security of demand, it's also the security or for the producers to be able to sell at the relatively predictable prices that they can 
first of all, afford, but also which co- you know corresponds to the cost of production and also to be supplied in, in a way which doesn't disrupt, for example, supply chains and, and, and all the kind of operations around the sale of, of, of energy. So uh, during COVID and immediately after COVID, a lot of emphasis was actually made on energy security for suppliers, you know, because they really didn't feel secure at all. Do you remember time when, you know, all this, in fact, and Pat and I were on another podcast. I, I remember that very vividly when we discussed scenarios and we talked a lot about all these tankers floating around the world full of oil. And we were all concerned that they will start dumping this oil in the middle of the ocean. There was a time when the price of oil was below zero. Yeah. In the United States, you know, you know, shortly for a moment, it was below zero. But generally, we were in that situation where actually for suppliers, energy security was a problem. Today, we're in a world where the energy security is primarily focused on consumers, you know, and it is interesting that actually it is focusing on consumers and it is for consumers themselves that are making uh, policies that in fact is going to make their supply less secure. I think there are three key themes you have to look at. One is domestic resilience. The second is diversification. And the third one is the relations required to conduct the business of buying or selling. You need at least one of those things to have a measure of energy security. And ideally, of course, you'd like all three. Now, when we kind of look at the situation right now and we look at it in the context of weaponization, which is happening on, on kind of both sides of the ledger, there's a whole bunch of places around the world that don't have all three legs of that stool. Some of them that have kind of a bit more than others. And this is playing out in some of the decision making that's going on with respect to shaping the policy response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict around, you know, how and to what extent can, can energy be weaponized. Interesting example here, of course, is the United States, which has significantly higher domestic energy resilience. Um, it also, you know, has a robust system of relations that allow it to trade away its oil and a lot of demand. And it also has diversification of, of import and export markets. Now, you start to look to Europe, that's not the case, really. You start to look at Russia, that's clearly under threat. And then with the issue of, you know, the, the demand side leverage that we're talking about, you know, that is being vis-a-vis kind of India and China kind of threatened or at least called into question, or at least they're being invited to essentially limit their own options and condition them in a way that they may find unfavorable. So, you know, energy security, I think, across the board here is, is kind of uh, uh, under challenge to everyone. But it's playing out in very, very kind of different ways in different places. Talking of leverage, it seems striking to me that this this moment is a, a great illustration, the latest in a series of illustrations of the West's declining authority. How do you see what's going on with respect to intervention in the energy market? What do you think that tells us about the status of the West and the overall impact on the geopolitical environment longer term? These things are obviously very different for gas and oil for, you know, technical reasons, infrastructural reasons and so on. With kind of oil, first of all, the oil market is just an enormously diversified thing. The commodity is very, very functional. And the the history of international oil trading is long and colourful in terms of the way in which crude will get to market despite you know, whatever geopolitical or regulatory barriers might be thrown in its way. Kind of reminded of Frank Herbert's novel Dune, you know, the spice must flow. Sellers find buyers. 
some of the challenges with these accords is that in order for them to really work, the, the coverage, the number of people willing to sign on and enforce these things day in, day out, for them to be effective and actually achieve policy aims, because what we sometimes forget with this stuff, there is a policy aim here, which is to get Russia to stop fighting Ukraine, you know, is very, very challenging. And it doesn't take that much in terms of the development of a kind of scoff law oil sector to develop at the margins to undermine the whole thing. Well, I think, you know, actually, I, I wouldn't underestimate, you know, resilience of the West. I mean, there are two types of resilience. There is resilience about taking pain, to be able to take pain. And clearly, Russia thinks that it will be able to take pain uh, more than the West, you know, partly because it does have still substantial reserves. The oil price at the moment, even with a cap, is likely to be higher than what Russia initially budgeted for, which is, I think, about $45 a barrel. But uh, at the same time, I think there is also another resilience, which is resilience through adaptation. And I think this is where Europe is actually, in the West more broadly, is much more resilient than Russia, because we know that today with uh, all other sanctions on the table, Russia is now more dependent than ever, Russian economy is more dependent than ever on the uh, export of um, uh, raw materials, in particular fossil fuels. So the share of uh, revenues from those exports is now at the historic high because simply other exports have really collapsed. And therefore, Russia needs to sell oil and gas, while for Europe, in fact, even before the war in Ukraine started, Europe has been on the journey towards, you know, transition away from fossil fuels. So we were expecting that EU will stop importing Russian coal already by the mid of this decade and certainly importing Russian oil by the end of this decade. And therefore, you know, the very fact that the European Union, despite of all the differences traditionally within the EU in relations to trade with Russia, were able to agree a common policy on stopping imports of Russian oil, seaborne oil, already this year, you know, in December. I think it is quite remarkable. And so therefore, I think we shouldn't underestimate the capacity of the West, you know, both to take the pain and now increasingly to accelerate adaptation. You know, the energy sector, of course, is being substantially reshaped and rewired by sanctions and all the various propositions about price cap, etc. But I think we should not uh, forget uh, the fact that uh, actually Europe and, I, and the West more broadly is increasingly in a strong position at this bargaining table because we've seen quite substantial progress in energy transition. We've seen substantial progress on diversification, including in the area of gas imports. And we are seeing now increasing political alignment not only among the EU member states, but also within countries. For example, in Germany, the opinion polls demonstrate that for the first time in, in decades, and that includes the time of the Cold War, the majority of the German public now view imports of Russia's energy resources into Germany as a, as an, as a threat to the country. And therefore, they are prepared to pay just to reduce that uh, threat. And of course, it's going to be very challenging this winter, but it is a fundamentally different approach that uh, I think is going to stick regardless of what's going to happen in Ukraine. So Russian oil and gas is not returning back to Europe in the long run. Yes, we have this acceleration to the energy transition, but we are also seeing it widely disrupted as you know, Europe in particular, but other major consumer centers in the world struggle to keep the lights on. You know, Coal use in Europe is actually at an all-time high. It's a struggle and timing will be everything. And that's a major challenge. And also it's just going to test the broader capacity of these economies, the credibility of their central banks and so on. Awareness of political, country and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. 
Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Claudine, it's time we talk about business and what this means for companies. We want to get into a little bit about short-term outlook, longer-term outlook, and then what on earth do companies do? Yeah. Our clients are asking us a lot of questions at the moment, aren't they, about the operational implications of the energy crisis. They're feeling, I think, a sense of bewilderment and a sense of concern bordering on alarm in some cases about the prospects of unrest, particularly in parts of the world as a consequence of energy shortages and high prices causing frustration. Oksana, talk us through how, how you perceive the consequences on business from what you're hearing from our clients. We are looking at the, you know three levels really of concerns that we hear from our clients, particularly looking at clients that are in the energy importing countries. The first one is general sense of disruption. So we are now seeing both the disruption caused by sanctions. We're also seeing, of course, disruption as a result of Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe. We see disruption, which is uh, percolating into supply chains because many you know, uh, companies are suffering as a result of high energy prices and are likely to close down in the coming months. So all this concern about disruption, trying to understand systematically how to assess the level of disruption, how to prepare for it, how to also plan for the coming you know winter and how to estimate you know perhaps through scenario planning etc you know what the could be the extreme disruption versus i think acceptable disruption the second level is where i think increasingly companies are looking at is trying to place their own competitiveness in the context of you know now what is likely to be sustained high oil and gas prices around the world and that is the thing is very uh, important question for europe in particular because many industrial economies in Europe, be it Germany, be it Italy, um, some Central European countries that are dependent on, you know, being part of this manufacturing supply chain for, for German industry, have really built the entire business models, economic models, predicated on having stable access to cheap Russian energy resources, particularly Russian gas, which was flowing in abundance at the low prices. Now, if they have to shift towards, you know, spot market for LNG, which is increasingly going to be both, you know, difficult to access, you know, in terms of volume, but also price wise, you know, many of those business models will not be competitive. So therefore, businesses are now trying to estimate, you know, can they really survive in a new environment? how they need to adjust their business models, you know, what do they need to ask their governments and regulators in terms of providing them support? We're now just seeing the new government coming into Downing Street in the UK. And one of the big asks from businesses is to provide very substantial package of assistance to compensate for, you know, uncapped, in fact, you know, energy prices for businesses in the UK. And that, of course, is going to be repeated all around the EU. And finally, the third issue, I think this is what I think a lot of businesses are now increasing looking kind of a longer term is that 
you know, disruption and, and, and likely longer term change to business models and competitiveness really mean that they need to think once again what their long term approach to sustainability, you know, uh, uh, climate, uh, you know, and other issues that are related to their long term planning mean. Are we now in a world where energy security will be prioritized over energy transition for quite a long time? Are we in the world now that, in fact, they have to be investing rapidly in making themselves resilient and finding actually different sources of energy and therefore accelerating energy transition? So those kind of long term strategies are really coming up. But they, are, of course, are not perhaps the, the priority number one of the day at the moment. Patrick, what are you telling clients? Businesses in the UK are understandably terrified about their exposure to high energy costs, number one. And then exactly these kind of input-output questions, these supply chain questions that are going to come down the pipe and are almost certainly going to be worse. In this part of the world, it's different. Nobody in Dubai is terrified about their energy bills in the coming months. And there are slivers of feedback from clients actually about opportunity here. If you have a world where in certain markets, manufacturing is suffering for globally required goods because of high energy costs, you can make that stuff elsewhere. Uh, it's, a, it's potentially a real fillip for Gulf economies, which are number one, absolutely flush with cash. Number two, have already got strategies in place for economic diversification. Number three, have geopolitical positioning, which you know is increasingly linking them to key Asian markets in particular. Number four, just an opportunity to manufacture a wider range of goods, provide more jobs to their people, attract diversified investment, somewhere where the cost base actually kind of makes more sense. Very differentiated kind of scene here. And I think while the overall message, as it was with COVID when we were discussing that back in the day, was this massive transition from focus on efficiency to resilience, I think that's very much the same kind of thing here, but with an added kind of flavor that there's the potential for opportunity within the kind of framework of development that some of the richer states in the Middle East are, are kind of aiming for. Although the picture is very different and maybe high costs aren't the same issue for companies in the Middle East, they are elsewhere in the world at the moment. The sustainability point that Oksana was making about this, this, this crisis and the potential impact it has on energy transition, particularly in the nearer term, and companies having to really think about how their energy mix is going to look, how that's going to align with their sustainability credentials and their plans, that, that that must be a concern as much in the Middle East as it is elsewhere? You know, companies obviously have their own targets and have been working towards those and their own policies and so on. But I think in a general sense, we are seeing a kind of draining of purpose on this issue and a draining of externalised pressure on some of the kind of COP26 type targets and net zero and all of that kind of thing. Those things kind of will, you know, be de-emphasized in the, in, in the quest for resilience and growth. And I think that, you know, governments will maintain, nobody's kind of dropping targets or anything like that. Countries in this region will be flexible and prioritize issues of growth and resilience. And so there will be flexibility. 
the G20 is paralyzed. We just had a G20 meeting of energy ministers, which ended with nothing. And we are heading towards, you know, next COP meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh, where we are again likely to see geopolitical clashes coming to the fore. China has suspended its climate dialogue with the United States. You know, Russia is now opposing most of the Western-supported, you know, climate targets for geopolitical reasons. You know, so we're going to see another clash, which uh, far from sustaining the momentum is actually likely to put it in reverse. And then, of course, the big question is whether the businesses will take the baton and completely continue to run in this really race, as, as, as Boris Johnson had mentioned yesterday. <laughs> you know, so are we going to see the, the baton actually passing on to the, to the business, which is going to take on and champion energy transition and sustainability because they know that their uh, shareholders, the market, the consumers still very much want that. And, 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 and maybe at some point, geopolitical environment, geopolitical storm is going to come and we're going to see again governments taking over. But for the time being, it is really going to be very much um, at the mercy of businesses themselves to carry on the momentum. But I think we have to question whether consumers want it when so many governments are being elected, which have very questionable views on or, or are deniers of climate change and are very sceptical about energy transition. I mean, uh, I think the interesting there, though, Claudine, I mean, I, what I would just say about sort of this part of the world, one kind of bright spot is there's still a recognition that, you know, in the long term, it, whatever about climate, like the energy transition will happen and that it just economically makes sense to diversify domestic sources of energy towards renewables and to ensure that they're positioned for, you know, the uh, the replacement of of hydrocarbons with you know, potentially with things like hydrogen in the future. I think some of those long-term imperatives are going to kind of remain, but I think a lot of the rhetoric is kind of going to go out of this thing. But there'd still be an overarching level of kind of policy stability in the Middle East for some of that kind of stuff. Those those longer-term investment opportunities, I think, are going to remain here. And I think an irony is, is uh, yeah, we're going to see more policy stability in this part of the world than we are in the parts of the world that have historically tried to champion the the climate change issue and the sustainability issue. I get the sense from both of you, Oksana and Pat, that the situation has a long way left to run. What should companies be doing? I mean, it, it sounds as if, number one, they need to be thinking long term. What sort of time frame should they have in mind when they're thinking about how long they need to be really battening down the hatches and in, almost in a sort of crisis management mode to navigate through this energy crisis? And what other tools should they be using themselves, talking about states weaponizing energy, what should companies be doing to navigate through this period? Well, in terms of the timeline, I think we are in the new reality for good. You know, at least we are not there in terms of, you know, well, let's get through this winter and then next winter will be okay. You know, we certainly shouldn't be in that frame of mind, not only because, you know, we certainly estimate that the, the war in Ukraine still has many months and years to run, but also because the disruption of energy market, you know, is going to continue regardless of how the war, you know, ends. 
secondly, I think because, you know, this kind of adjustments that many governments and, and companies and, and sectors have to make to the new reality of uh, more expensive, uh, you know, energy is something which they need to do anyway, you know, regardless of what is happening in, in relations to sanctions in, in Ukraine, because clearly we, we, we have been seeing the environment in which, you know, be it under investment and be it other reasons, you know, the, the era of cheap energy is over. Now, at the same time, of course, this is perhaps the the period, you know, of this kind of stress before we entering a much more predictable environment, you know, which relates to the energy transition and emergence of new technologies that underpin it and reducing the cost of energy on the back is exactly as Pat said of the more competitive and cheaper, you know, sources of energy coming from renewables. So, so we need to be thinking about this new reality, which we were all hoping will come organically at the end of the decade, but it actually came in accelerated fashion, you know, already today. Being prepared for that, you know, thinking in the longer term is something which, you know, companies should think, you know, beyond just, you know, crisis mode. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a, there is, of course, the crisis piece, which is these kind of acute kind of run up in prices. Is that, are these things kind of survivable um, just from a, a raw price exposure to energy costs? The supply chain issue, I think, which we've mentioned before, I think we're just at the start of that thing. And I think for, for, for clients, it's really an issue, as we discussed with COVID, looking at your resilience piece, where are the vulnerabilities? Where are the components that are made of aluminium where manufacturing is, is going down? Where are the vulnerabilities in your supply chain? Are there things that you can do with people in your supply chain to try and build some resilience, to like be flexible on terms, whatever it may be. I think the other thing that, that companies are going to have to accept, although with a different kind of flavor to it than under COVID, is that the state is, is taking a huge hand in shaping the commercial environment and will continue to do so in the coming few years as we see this, as we see this thing through. That's obviously, as Oksana mentioned, with respect to kind of bailouts and financial support, but it's also, I think, in some markets and people who kind of rely or who attach to them to a point where in an attritional environment where state support is the key differential in terms of whether some businesses succeed and others fail, is that the state is going to be picking winners and losers. Again, silver lining type stuff potentially is that further down the pipe as this sort of weaponization elements become played out. You know, Russia is reaching the end of the, what it can kind of do in terms of weaponization. It's already, it can't shut Nord Stream 1 twice. Things will kind of settle. And as they do settle, I think there will be kind of new opportunities in terms of looking at where are the, where are the new viable cost bases now versus where are the most robust consumer markets now and so on. And it all will require rejigging, which is lots of work. But, you know, things will kind of reshape and reorder themselves. The world does look and feel very different depending on where you sit, of course. But I think it's fair to say that the energy crisis we've been talking about today is being felt to some extent in some form everywhere. Oksana, thank you. Thank you, Claudine and Chuck. It's a pleasure. And Pat in Dubai, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Great to talk as always. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, 
a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.